Welcome to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin, and while I was at the 2017 Narrative Camp, organized by reauthoringteaching.com, I had the pleasure to interview Dr. Travis Heath, psychologist in private practice and assistant professor of psychology at MSU Denver. We discuss subverting the system, using hip-hop and therapy, police murder of people of color in the United States, the struggles of working in academia, and more. Travis can be reached at heatht at msudenver.edu. You can also go online to sfbantr.org for the show notes. About 25 minutes into the interview, I play a song that I recorded by the young artist Ali at Dreamcatcher Youth Services, where I work, and it's fascinating to hear how the introduction of music changes the conversation. All the instrumentals are produced by the Passion Hi-Fi, available free on soundcloud.com. I picked out all those tracks, so it's my musical taste you should be judging, not Travis's. Enjoy the show. Well, we're here at a Narrative Camp 2017 by Lake Champlain in Vermont. I'm here with Tra- Travis Heath, and I wanted to start by uh, appreciating Peggy Sachs for all the organizing she did and all the behind-the-scenes work that went into making so many great conversations here, and to start off with appreciation for all her great work and great efforts and providing such a great community experience for so many people. Yeah, uh- Will, I echo what you just said, and I'd also add that, um, you know, this is the first time I've met Peggy in person, and uh, she seemed to know what, like, all 60 people were doing and where they should be at all. Like, she knew where I was supposed to be before I knew where I was supposed to be, so I don't, um, how she keeps all of this straight in her head, just the, like, day-to-day organizing was just amazing, and, you know, what a great spot to have so many of the, you know, narrative community come together. I can't, I was telling you on the way over, I can't remember a gathering quite like this, you know, where um, it's not just the people that are here, but it's also the ambiance that's created. And it's just, it's made for some really great conversations that I'll never forget. And I wanted to start, Travis, asking you, you know, if, if we talk about what you, what you like to talk about and the messages you like to get out there, who would you like to send those messages to? Like if, if you could send these messages out to somebody who would you like to receive them to hear your messages? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? That's a really good question. Um, I suppose it would be uh, uh, an eclectic audience. So I, I'd love for first just people that um, maybe have felt like th- therapy uh, won't work for them, right? Or um, maybe they've even been told that, that they're resistant or that they're not good candidates for therapy. I would hope that they might hear this and... Um, you know, even if they don't like, because um, we'll probably spend a decent amount of time talking about uh, rap, hip hop, and how that might uh, come together with narrative. But even if they don't like rap music, I hope that uh, more generally our conversation will just explore anti-languages and, and how um, people might be open to, um, therapists might be open to uh, uh, creating space for people to heal using their own cultural mediums and metaphors. So I guess, you know, of course, people that that might have had bad experiences in therapy or be reluctant to seek therapy in some way i'd love for them 
to hear this. I'd love for therapists, um, other any kinds of mental health uh, workers, just general community workers generally. And I guess, you know, it would also be awesome just anyone involved in the uh, broader hip hop community. I mean, it would be great to um, uh, have conversations with them as well. So maybe a sort of a three pronged audience there. Danielle Drake from San Francisco mentioned that she didn't join the clinical psychology program to become good at clinical psychology. She wanted to subvert the system. I imagine, I, I, no, I noticed you nodding or just saying affirmative too. So I wonder if there was any, if there's any messages we could send out to people who are also interested in going into some of these programs in higher education, not just to become good at the program, but to subvert the system too. And if that's an interest that you would take up. Absolutely an interest that uh, I hope I am actively taking up. Um, you know, I think, how, how does the system change if uh, we don't subvert it, right? Um, I think there there always has to be subversion. And I think uh, hip-hop, by its very nature, the language of hip-hop, um, uh, the experience of hip-hop is, at its best, subversive. So, absolutely. And, and again, I hope that, um, again, I'd love to have conversations with people in the hip-hop community, of course, but... But, you know, I, what I've found about this work is that it's not just, it's anyone who wants to be subversive in any way. I think hip-hop can teach us lessons about that and that those lessons can, are, they can cross over to different cultures and different mediums. And so, um, yeah, I mean, so I don't know if I'm subversive as much as like hip-hop in a lot of ways uh, does the subversion for me. Uh, you know, I, I, as the more I learn about hip-hop and the culture of hip-hop and the history of hip-hop, um, you know, the more it becomes a, a vehicle for that and a, a, like a seamless vehicle for that. Um, but there's so many other ways to be, you know, like I've talked to people and they'll uh, be into um, uh, punk music, right? That, that's an easy crossover I found. And I don't know a ton about punk music, but really I'll sit down with someone. And we'll talk for 10 or 15 minutes. It's going like, well, we're saying the same thing here, right? It, maybe we're coming at it a little differently. Maybe some of the cultures that are initiating it, uh, they might not be exactly the same, but the same message is there. So, um, and even for like narrative therapists who've been doing this for 25 or 30 years, you know, there's a woman in Denver that I work with. She's a 50 year old or so white woman. And she said, well, I can't, I can't do any of this hip-hop. So I don't know anything about hip-hop. I said, sure you can. I mean, uh, she goes, well, how, how would I do that? I said, well, you know, imagine if you took the stance of, hey, would you teach me about hip-hop? You know, I, I, would you teach me about rap music? Could you share? I mean, I think there can be a therapeutic power to a white woman who, in terms of race anyways, in the interaction with uh, most of the black and Latino clients I work with, um, you know, that, that uh, she's sort of spotting her privilege and she's... Um, and that's uh, to then say, teach me about rap or hip hop. That to me is a subversive act, right? A 50 year old white woman who has no history with rap music to say, Hey, teach me about this and, and, and teach me about how it's important in your life. So, you know, I think it, uh, it's subversive and, and anyone I hope could take away something from it. One quote that I've come precious to me is from the composer, John Cage. He says, good music can act as a guide to good living. And I think about, you know, for the youth I was working with, the shelter for youth who are homeless in Oakland, you know, you could tell that hip hop was a guide to them, yeah. and uh, a force in them that that helped them um, go throughout the day, get through the day, inspire them, um, question things, and provide some direction. And um, we were talking about subversion, and what what do you mean by subversion? What 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 uh, what does that word mean to you? 
Yeah, so the way I've described it, I, I was once on this panel with non-narrative therapists at some psychology conference years ago, and uh, they, they sort of asked me what my goal was, and I said, well, have you ever seen those people who pull tablecloths off of tables, right, and they, they, they sort of snatch it off and everything stays standing, and I said, yeah, I want to snatch it off and have everything go flying. I want to totally discombobulate things, um, and, and not necessarily, I'm not saying the people that I work with that I want them to walk away feeling discombobulated. I'm more talking about the systems, right, that we work in that maybe... Um, they would be so discombobulated, everything would be on the ground and we'd have to reconstitute it in a new way. Um, so in that way, I, I look at it as sort of a chaotic act, right? Um, sometimes I think it's more targeted. Maybe I'm not ripping the whole tablecloth off, right? Maybe I'm uh, targeting something and specifically moving it or altering it, right? But um, yeah, that, that's how I've thought about it, sort of sh uh, shaking things up, do, doing something that... Um, uh, I guess it doesn't always have to be provocative. Sometimes it, it it's experienced that way by people. But I don't know if it's being provocative for the sake of being provocative. It's more uh, to kind of challenge stale beliefs or uh, stale ways of doing things. So I'm, I'm having a, a dilemma. I want to ask you more about, you know, the <laughs> the food on the tablecloth and and. and why what do you think it is there that we should that you would like to pull away what you see in there that seems harmful or cons Constraining of people, but I also want to ask you about your history with hip-hop music and how you got into it and your personal life So I, I guess those are two directions and what, what are you most interested in, in going into? I think we go to both Why don't I try to address your first question quickly and then we'll move on to the next one So so how did you ask it again? What, what did you say? Well, when you look at this this table that's presented as mental health work or psychology coming from you know Eurocentric views uh, What do you see in it that you think actually? I don't want to just pull away and leave it there. I want to dismantle dismantle it What do you see in there that seems I, I would use words like harmful or constraining, but how would you describe it? First of all, I want to say that I don't think everything on the table is necessarily harmful, but I still think it's worth pulling everything off. Because um, even if it's helpful, I think we should, if we pull it off and we have to put it back on, we at least have to examine it, right? And so I, I'm, I don't mean to say that everything in our current systems of mental health uh, are bad, but I think we should at least re-examine them before we put them back on the table. Now, um, but there are some things that, I mean, it's subjective to say that things are bad. I mean, people might not agree with me, but if you're asking my opinion on that, I would say um, the idea of multicultural counseling, I think, comes from a good place. Um, I, I, like, I like the spirit of it. Uh, but that word has just become so watered down, in my opinion. And, and I think what's happened now is we look at multicultural counseling often as like, Here's a Euro-American sort of centric view of doing therapy or counseling. And, oh, we're going to create space within this metaphor for others, right? Uh, while that seems like a, a noble gesture, I think there's something missing there, right? It's not, it's not like we should make space within our metaphor for you. No, we should make space for you to bring your metaphors, right? Whatever they are. You, uh, my good friend Makunga Akinyela from um, Atlanta often says it uh, way more eloquently than I will right now. Um, you know, we, we need to create space for people to heal in their own cultural ways and in their own cultural mediums, right? And so I don't think currently in mental health we uh, do such a good job of that. Uh, and... and uh, part and parcel, I guess, to that would be uh, creativity. I don't, um, in some ways that sounds trite to say creativity. I wish I could find a better way to express it. In innovation, um, new ways of doing things that, that, that are 
not basic just replications of other things with new names, but genuinely new ways of approaching mental health. I don't think we do that very well. Um, I'll explain it this way. This is the best way I can explain it. I was talking to a student of mine in my office, and um, she has this research idea. Now she's into narrative, and she's whispering. Yeah, she's whis- uh, whispering, and I'm whispering back about the idea. And about halfway through the conversation, I said, um, "Hey, Amanda, do you like why? Um, do you know why we're whispering?" And she's like, "Well, I don't want anyone else to get the idea." you know, steal the idea. I sort of said, um, hmm, do you suppose that if it really is a new idea that people will actually want to steal it? The point being like, um, something that is actually new, no one wants that. They, they run from it, right? So I'm in academia where you just reproduce the same things that have already been done with some small tweak, right? So you can get a publication. And so in that way, humbly, I, I believe that we don't innovate as much as we could because it, it's risky. It's scary. You, you might be rejected. And I mean, there's all kinds of discourses around why not. I'm not saying I don't understand why not, but, um, I, I, and I guess in that way to truly innovate is a subversive act also, but I feel like we don't, um, we don't innovate. And just in getting into your story of your history of how hip hop, came to be uh, something that you saw as a, as, a, as a catalyst for change and a catalyst for guides for people. Like, could you tell me a little about when that started to matter to you or the communities of people you were part of? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up uh, in hip-hop culture, and so it was just, you know, I grew up with friends, homeboys, who would uh, beatbox and um, rap and freestyle, and that was just, you know, what was around me. Uh, I, I wasn't so good at that myself. I was more of an athlete. Like you had two ways to get street cred, really. You could be an athlete or you could, um, you know, uh, rap. And um, I, my rapping skills were, uh, I don't even know if I'd say mediocre, um, but I was a decent enough athlete. Um, so that, that sort of got me off the hook there. Uh, but I was around it all my life. Um, you know, when I was younger, I don't know if I really thought about it as healing. Um, um, it, it just was, <laughs> it was just, it just was, I mean, I didn't think of it that it heals in some way, but then again, my 14 year old self wasn't exactly, um, uh, looking at things through that lens. So I get into graduate school and, um, I, I went to Pepperdine and, um, so that campus was located in Malibu. I think, um, you know, I was one of just two shades of Brown in my cohort. So it wasn't a very diverse, uh, um, campus, but hey, I learned a lot of good things. It was very good. And, and this was the Malibu campus, not the Orange County campus that's doing a lot of narrative stuff. And this was uh, the early 2000s. So I had a practicum site in South Los Angeles and, and also in Inglewood and Lenox and other places um, where I was subcontracted to go into homes and do counseling, to go into schools and do counseling, lots of community work. And uh, so, you know, uh, this was the beginning of the manual, uh, manualized movement. So I went in with my CBT manuals under my arms and I was going to save the world. And um, I found uh, really quickly that that wasn't going to work out so well. Um, So bringing hip hop into this uh, world of healing, it was really sort of by accident, I guess, because I felt like I was drowning. None None of this CBT stuff was working. And so, and keep in mind, this is like 2002, 2003 when I started this work. iPods didn't exist quite yet, but um, CD player, you know, almost all the kids that came into my office for the younger members of our audience, they may not remember this, but uh, you'd have like the skip protection on your CD player, you know, they'd come in with those and the, yeah, and their headphones. And so I was like, oh, you know, I love music. It turns out they love music. We often both loved 
rap music. So it was an easy entry point. And I just started asking them questions about the music they were listening to. And at that time, I hadn't yet come in contact with narrative. But, um, and I don't know how conscious, how consciously aware of it I was, but something shifted when we started talking about music and then they'd you know at this time we didn't have macbooks and all this where you can do all this amazing musical stuff but uh you know they would um uh produce tracks right they'd produce beats and uh they'd beats about their lives and um I couldn't explain what was going on. Um, and maybe in some ways this was good. I didn't have all the professional lexicon yet, but I just knew something was happening here. Something, when we, when we invited music into our meetings, it changed. Uh, then I came into narrative ideas about 2004. I say came into them. I mean, anyone that's come into narrative ideas knows that's a process. So, you know, um, I, I was exposed to them and it blew my mind. I had to, I, but I said, I could never do, I could never do that. But, you know, maybe I could take a little bit of it away and bring it with me. Um, but, you know, I, I then went on to a PhD program, uh, which was um, not pro-narrative, let's just put it that way. Uh, so I had to kind of get my own narrative training, but I was just mesmerized by it. So I just kept going and kept going and started to learn more and more about narrative. Um, and so there was a time where I was working in a university clinic where I, um, uh, there, there really uh, weren't opportunities, or if there were, they would have been sort of shot down by um, higher ups to bring rap music into the room. So there was a three-year period there, at least, where that didn't really happen so much. But once I um, did my, uh, if you're trained, I'm a psychologist by training, uh, unfortunately, in some ways. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I think maybe social work uh, would have been. Um, uh, a better fit in terms of its ethic, but I, I, hey, I didn't know that, and I was naive going into it. But y you know, I, I, I had to do a pre-doctoral internship that sent me back out to LA, and it was a place in Torrance um, called the Schweitzer Learning Center, and uh, it's a non-public school, is what they call it. Uh, I don't know if they have these in the Bay Area too, and. Yeah, so most people, other places, like in Colorado, they don't understand. They'll go, oh, like a private school. And I say, no, this is a little different. This is sort of, the, Schweitzer was really a place where, um, you know, when, when private schools, public schools, all schools in between couldn't serve a certain student, we were kind of like the last stop, right? And we were like K through 12, pretty remarkable with just, you know, anyway, it fluctuated between like, let's say 90 to 120 students, K through 12. And so here... Uh, is where I really got uh, reintroduced to hip-hop in my work because um, the young people I was working with now, um, you know, technology's advancing a bit. Uh, the iPod has been around long enough that it's not an iPhone yet, but the iPod's around. A lot of the kids have iPods, right? And so um, now I knew enough about narrative. I mean, I'm not saying I knew uh, I was a great narrative therapist or anything, but I knew enough that it, it took the work with rap and hip-hop um, in a more rich direction, right? I was able to kind of see, oh, okay, like, rap music is challenging dominant discourse. Like, wow, yeah, I couldn't have said that in 2004 because I didn't know what a dominant discourse was. But little pieces like that where I started to see where these things fit together, right? And then, um, you know, when I went back to Denver, where I'm from, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I've, I've worked with Denver probation and other sort of uh, local uh, municipalities, uh, probation uh, units or whatever you want to call them. And so in court referrals and those kinds of things. So for the last uh, six, seven years, uh, you know, I've, I've really had a lot of time to play with this work. And um, 
by no means would I say it's perfected, but um, if I look at where it started from 2002, 2003, where I was just asking people about music, to now where we can, um, I feel like the questions that I can ask about music are so much richer, and I feel like, um, hopefully, uh, I can ask questions that um, uh, could open up possibilities that I wouldn't have even known how to open up, you know, through, through rap music. So that's kind of a bit of my personal history and then how we ended up there. So if you look at it, I mean, I've been around rap pretty much all my life, but, um, you know, it's been, th- it's weird. Well, sitting here thinking about it. it's been 13 years, uh, four- 14 really, since I've started cultivating these, uh, ideas. And, um, you know, there are a lot of other people that are doing good work around it too, because I think it just makes so much sense. Like anyone who's ever done it like if you've ever it doesn't have to be rap music by the way but anyone who's ever integrated music into their work knows what i'm talking about you can see you can see a transformation as soon as you do that now what narrative has done is it's helped me ask much better questions about it and those questions then can invite the young people i'm working with to uh write songs in ways they might not have considered before or if they're not songwriters we can talk about this more later if you want because you don't have to be a songwriter to do this you don't even have to rap it can invite them to um, uh, perhaps listen with a slightly different ear to the songs that they already like and are listening to, right? They might go even a little bit deeper with those songs or catch something that they might not have caught before. And uh, without narrative, um, you know, I think uh, I would have stagnated a bit. And talking about uh, asking youth either to play a song that they like or share a song that they've written, Um, and how to have a, a good discussion about that or an interesting discussion about that. Um, that's something I'm very interested in because I see the power of music most in my own life and people I work with and friends and family. And um, you know, I read your article that you wrote in 2014, I gracefully grab a pen and embrace it, hip-hop lyrics as a means for reauthoring and therapeutic change that you wrote with Paolo Arroyo. Yeah, Paolo. <laughs> <laughs> and that's published in the International Journal of Narrative Therapy and Community Work. And I started to ask... You through just like you describe, I have a you know, this pair of earphones dangling from their ears. You know, what are you what are you listening to? And you know, like I said, uh, you know, I'm a thirty six year old white male and I felt like, you know, is this is this a little culturally distant hip hop? I don't know as much about it as I know about, you know, punk rock music, funk and soul and blues and jazz and stuff like that. Um, but some of them would tell me about it and they would talk about some of these artists like MF Doom and KRS One and Locksmith and other people and they would tell me about the differences between them and quote and I you know, ask them about the certain lyrics that you uh, you know, you know, hold close to you and that help you. And I, I said, I'm making a playlist. Could you, any song you'd like to add for the playlist of, I could share with other youth and they would say, you know, different, different artists. Um, Anthony Hamilton coming from where I'm from is one I remember they put on there. And um, it's very interesting and, it, and it, it made new relationships possible. And I realized, you know, I have these abilities with, um, with recording. So I started to ask, hey, do you want me to record you rapping and we could download some instrumentals that you practice with and you could record and it started to create this culture where they would start to do that and start to get really serious about it so i have um one song that someone did that i'd like to play for you and maybe that maybe you know with this we're talking about how how nice it is when people bring in music we could bring music to this how's that sound uh that sounds fantastic i mean um what better way to bring people in the work uh, into the work than show it right yeah. maybe we can get on a little riff together around it yeah um so, like I said, I was I was doing a few of this, and, and the youth, who, you know, were they're freestyling, and then they started to share 
um, lyrics that they had spent time writing and it started to get a little more serious. And they, they would talk actually about getting psychiatric treatment and medication and their feelings about this. But one kid came in and he heard that I was doing it. And, uh, you know, he wasn't staying in there, but his friend told him they're doing it. So he came in, uh, just one take and it was ready. It was done. And so my role is, you know, press record. Nothing else was needed. <laughs> this is Ali, O-L-I. Was closer to my dreams. This for you, Mama. Ali. Flashbacks to the days when my mom was here I was taken away from her, now we sitting in foster care Three years old, it seems like I had no fears I was a man in my house, my daddy wasn't there I was picked up by my cousin since she really cared Eleven years later, mama passed, it wasn't there I heard about it in juvie and I shed some tears A week from Christmas, worst present of the fucking year That was a big bump in my life, so I had to change From there I looked at sports, and there I did my thing I was racing on top of the world, and I built a name Fifth fastest in for scoring, people yell my name But I'm just another black kid in these fucked up streets I didn't wanna hear it, so I threw them track cleats I ran my ass off, every track meeting I was shooting for the stars, trying to break away from concrete Now it's just a world against me and my family God give a sign, a miracle please I'm Picasso, I'm painting the picture perfectly And I'm closer to my dreams, ain't nobody messing with me I was a little man in a big world and I came again to see That had a lot of potential that the streets didn't give me And I failed over and over and I still try to succeed so I turned to the sports and things I could achieve See the clouds open up and I could hear the birds sing I did it for the squad and the people that raised me And I did the wrong things and I was stacking money Mom said I was going to end up, rest in peace Cause in the streets they don't know nothing about peace All they know is put a dude under six feet And all they want is wins, no L's or defeats But I wanna be that man who got the whole plan complete First dream, first off, I'ma tell you like this See paper chasing is like tag, one, two, three, and I meant Money always come to me, so I ain't gotta take it It was a dream I was chasing, so I had to make it, huh? And I'm just trying to be great And I'm just trying to be great Ali reaction to hearing hearing this song uh the first reaction happens in my body um you know as you asked me that i noticed my head's bobbing right my knees bumping and and so uh, we, you, we you and i just went to a different space that we couldn't have gone to if you didn't just play that song we were in largely an intellectual space and now we entered into i don't know another dimension of some kind an artistic space that doesn't even capture it right and it, you it, am i right in saying that you you changed too yeah yes, definitely. yeah so um the, it, it, it introduces something it the spirit changed it transformed um so that's the first thing uh the second thing is i i wish that um we could take the rhyme that we just heard and then we could take just like a traditional transcript of even of narrative of whatever therapy. I'm not trying to knock a specific type of therapy here. And we could put them side by side, right? Or even we could hear it. Imagine we could just hear the therapeutic session and then we could hear the rhyme. And, and, and I, um, I, I would just 
implore people to see what, even if they don't like rap music, what happens in their bodies? Like something percolates. And so um, it, it takes us into a, a modality of healing that we couldn't have been otherwise. Now, the, the second thing that I hear is like, uh, just the, the the genius and the lyrics, right? I mean, um, and and young people never cease to amaze me. By the way, um, I, I, I'm astonished at the talent that exists there. The third thing I would say is, and this is, I guess, a special shout out to the narrative therapists out there. You can listen to the story that's being told. I mean, it was what two and a half, three minutes tops. Two minutes. Two minutes. Okay, and and listen to the. St- I, I mean. If that couldn't give you, uh, it, it, even if you, um, you know, like sometimes I know David Epstein tells me when I'll play a rap song for him, he's, it's hard for me to understand. I'll say, okay, let me give you the lyrics, write them down and we'll go through them together. And then he does just fine with it. Um, so even if you had to do that and look at the lyrics as you listen to the song and maybe even some translation has to happen. Think about how many great conversations, hours of conversations that could come from a two minute song that... It's not just what the words are either. It's also the emphasis, right, that's put on certain words. Uh, you know, that, that if you're listening closely. Um, I mean, let, let's take like, I don't know, the first um, uh, 40 words, let's just say. I bet we could get one entire narrative therapies uh, sessions worth of questions out of that, right? So what 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 I'm saying with music, and it does, by the way, Maybe it's dance or maybe it's uh, poetry. Well, this is poetry, right? It's just a kind of poetry. Maybe it's uh, a painting. I mean, when you, when you introduce something, uh, and this is where I go back to that idea of innovation, when you introduce something that wasn't, to extend that metaphor, previously on the table, it opens up possibilities that we couldn't have seen before. Now, And I also wonder, um, with this young person, uh, I wonder how he would have responded to someone who would have just sat and asked him sort of uh, intellectual questions about things, right? Or even emotional, whatever. I mean, um, it, it, Will, if you don't mind me asking, how um, I think you said this when, when the mic wasn't going, um, so I want to make sure people hear it. Didn't you just say something like, I didn't really do much, I just sort of hit record? Isn't that what you said? That's, that's how I would describe it, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we talk about like uh, client directed modalities of change. And that's something else I found with this is that if we as as counselors, therapists, psychologists, social workers, whatever, use our privilege to invite space for this, this becomes as good of a client directed. I'm doing air quotes. That's no good on a a podcast. Um, This becomes as good of a client directed form of changes I've ever seen. Like I was telling you, Will, young people will take over my computer and I'm fine with it because I don't know what I'm doing. And they open up GarageBand and they open up BandKit. They, they finding baselines online. They do the whole thing. And I, and I just sit back and really what I'm doing is I'm witnessing it and I'm interested and I, I'm witnessing a performance, right? Which I, is a great honor to me. And so um, I hope that just from that two minutes or so, people see... Um, how much rich content could come out of that. Yeah, and in this particular youth, um, you know, he sent me a text message you know, months after I, I no longer saw him very much anymore. And he said, could you please resend me those recordings? I can't tell you much it means to me to hear my recording. And you know, if I had those kind of skills, it would mean so much to me to hear those kind of recordings as well. I mean, it's so 
powerful. And it, it makes me a little sad to think when we find someone with so much talent, how do we uplift them to the people who would love to hear them? I mean, you probably encounter this too, people who have things to say and um, art to give. And where are the venues where you can uplift it beyond people? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know if you thought about that, how you, do, right, maybe you found ways to uplift them. I, I would connect I connected this youth with a local group from Oakland called Beats, Rhymes, and Life, which does hip-hop therapy in Oakland, do great work, and have a recording studio that's open for free for youth and workshops to help youth do hip-hop and learn to do hip-hop, or just record them if they're already ready, which some of you are. They go in the same day and record in the drop-in session. They do great work. But I'm wondering, um, when you find youth who have these kind of abilities and these kind of talents, like, um, do you feel that call to share that with others, and, and how have you... Uh, thought about how you can uh, circulate their work or, or share it with others for the benefit not just of them but for the larger community this is a great question and uh, you know to go back to the timeline I was giving you this is something pre-2010 what I'm about to tell you that I never did and I probably wouldn't have thought of doing and again narrative therapy was an inspiration for it so uh, you know, like the idea of definitional ceremony, you know, that's sort of the lingo that's been used in narrative therapy um, I found that to be very helpful. So, um, you know, often my work with youth will culminate with a sort of definitional ceremony where uh, I'll invite the judge who's done the sentencing. I'll invite the probation officer and probation supervisor uh, with, of course, permission of the young person I'm working with. I'll invite um, uh, friends, family members, uh, homeboys, anyone in the community that the young person wants to invite. And we do a performance. Now, um, that performance is uh, um, meditated on is the best way I could describe it. It's, it's not done um, haphazardly, right? So we think about, all right, uh, we ask questions of identity, really, like um, how have these songs that you've either created or that we've gathered that, you know, artists you like have created, what do they say about your identity? You know, are there things you've learned about your identity? Are there things about your identity that these songs show that a lot of people miss, right? These kinds of questions. And then we tailor our performance around that. And I found, um, now granted, the first time I did it, I was very nervous as to how um, this might shake out, but I found it to be amazing. Um, you know, I've got a a paper here where I won't go through it all here. It wouldn't be a good podcast material to, to do this, but if people want to read the paper, um, so well, you talked about the one from 2013, 14, something like that. Yeah, this one came out in 2015. So it's called spitting truth from my soul, a case story of rapping probation and the narrative practices. It's a two part deal. So the first one is in uh, volume 34, number three. The second part is in volume 34, number four. What happened here was, um, you know, the journal said, all right, you know, we'll give you 7,000 words to write about this work. And I accidentally wrote 12,000 and they were kind enough to divide it into two parts. Anyways, in part two of this work, you can see uh, an example of a, a transcript of a definitional ceremony. And it's not just a transcript, it's a case story. So what I try to do in this story is tell it in such a way that you don't just see what I said and what the young person said or later on what the probation officer said, but you get a description of how I was feeling and what I was thinking and, you know, my doubts, my insecurities, where I thought I went wrong. And also, as best I can, um, you get an idea of how the young person I was speaking with was feeling moment to moment. And I asked, he's seen this, um, we had to use a, he, he's named Ray as his pseudonym in here. But in the second half of this paper, you, you can see this definitional ceremony and uh, his grandmother uh, uh, 
per Ray's report said, um, uh, I hate, you know, she hated rap music. It was, uh, the way he said it is uh, music of the devil. And he made little devil horns with his index fingers, you know, she'll never listen to it. And so, um, what, what we discovered though, was that Ray thought his grandmother was the wisest person he knew. And a lot of her wisdom worked its way into his rap songs without him even knowing it. And so we performed this for her and a lot of other people, but, um, his grandmother was moved to tears and, um, oh, gosh, I get emotional just thinking about it. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. So when you talk about the community aspect of this, I found that, um, um, that, that can't be, uh, uh, undersold. It's, it's very, very important. Um, I mean, we know this as narrative therapists, this is important, but there's something about the performance aspect around important others and the person's life. So that's, uh, one, uh, way of circulation that I've, um, found some pretty good success with. Uh, another way is just, it's sort of similar. Boy, I wish I, what's the name of the organization again? You mentioned beats rhymes in life in Oakland, California. Yes, and I um, have met up with people associated with them in my travels, different places. I hadn't made it into Oakland to, boy, that would be a heck of a trip to talk to them. But, um, you know, I wish we had something like that in Denver. We don't have something quite like that. But but we do have um, just so, sort of elders of hip-hop, if you will, in the community who um, have access to better equipment than my computer. Although, you did all that on your computer, the song that you, I mean, you, I was, I was amazed what could be done with my computer. Like these young people do things with it. I didn't even know it could do. So, so I don't mean to undersell that, but the point of it isn't access to better equipment. That's maybe the selling point, but they're connecting with other people, sometimes elders. Um, also I've done this work long enough that I sort of have, um, you know, some connections with, uh, youth that I've already worked with that agree that believe in the work. Right. Um, and so it's, it's, becoming increasingly easier for me to connect them with other people who have been through the work. And so now you have kind of a, uh, I don't know, uh, various like graduating classes, so to speak, of people that have uh, discovered healing through hip hop. And um, so that I've, I found that to be uh, really helpful too. The last thing that's done sometimes, I mean, um, this has been harder to do for a variety of reasons, but um, even finding its way into churches, uh, schools, other sorts of community venues. And, and that's not that hard. Well, sometimes it can be hard because of the reputation that has been placed upon hip hop and rap music uh, and hip hop culture. So, you know, people can be sort of worried it's misogynistic, it's violent. And so, but, you know, there are plenty of uh, churches or schools that are interested in this and you can set up uh, broader community performances. Now, of course, you have to mi uh, be mindful of confidentiality. And I'm always talking with young people about um, what they feel comfortable sharing and what they don't and making sure that if other people are coming into our work together that I have releases, you know, I'm making sure that I try and do this as best I can in, in you know, a best practice format. Um, so what, what I'm trying to tell people is that sometimes it takes a lot of energy, but it's worth it, I think, because there's nothing like seeing how these performances move people. Beautiful. You know, you've mentioned this phrase that I've only heard from you so far, anti-language. Is there another phrase you're thinking about? No, no, no. Anti-language, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering... If you could say a little bit how you think of that, that term, anti-language. Yes, I wish I could take credit for that. I cannot. Um, Marcella Polanco is amazing. And um, she's uh, she and David Epstein have been looking at anti-languages far before I started. Um, 
Marcella and David were nice enough to gift me uh, this term. And, um, you know, I, they, they asked the question because, you know, they're humble this way. They said, hey, do you suppose that the language of hip-hop might be an anti-language? And when we say an anti-language, you're talking about that idea of something that's subversive. I mean, that's what an anti-language is, right? It's basically... Uh, a, a language that um, runs counterculture, right? Mm-hmm. And if you speak that language, what what starts to happen? If you, if you if you can create, you don't have to even speak the language. If you can create space for that language, I, I would say I hate to use totalizing language, but I would say almost impossible to um, not hear stories you otherwise wouldn't have heard, right? So if you if you create space for that language, it's um, it's almost impossible not to hear stories you wouldn't have otherwise heard. Yes, think about it. Like um, the, the young man that you, um, you know, just were so gracious to let me hear his, his art. Um, do you think he would have told the story in the same way? I mean, surely you would agree that there were parts to the story that you heard in that song um, that we couldn't have heard anywhere else? Yeah, definitely. And so, it, and, and it, it, it becomes almost um, contagious, right? Like, what I mean by that is a young person will do one uh, and you can send it to them with the wonders of modern technology. It's almost like sending a letter, like a, an old school narrative letter, right? Uh, and sometimes I still do it in, in written form with the lyrics. Um, and then they read it or hear it, they, or both, they re-experience it. And it's like it fuels uh, some sort of, uh, it fuels something in them. It's more than just a creativity. Sometimes it's like an ancestral presence of something right and it fuels it and now more and more stories keep coming out even stories that they don't always know how to explain with just merely words words that aren't wrapped right words that are spoken like um the 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 article i was just telling you about spitting truth from my soul that was the language of ray i mean i asked him a question about like what's the difference when you speak with your words versus when you rap with um your uh, rap with your soul and he said um you know, when I rap, it's like I'm spitting truth from my soul. I mean, if you break that language down, it's incredible because it's, in other words, talking comes from, it's intellectual. Talking comes from his, his brain. And by the way, this kid Ray had been through 12 therapists. Nothing ever worked. I mean, the probation officer that sent me to him was like, look, I'm going to give him to you out of like, because I have to say I tried, but it's not, it's not going to work, right? Um, so everyone had sort of given up on this this young man. I mean, he wasn't a kid. He was 24. He was a young man. But he, um, you know, uh, as soon as rap was invited into our work, um, stories were told that he didn't, like, he didn't even exactly know where they would come from, right? He told me, all these old therapists I went to, uh, you know, they, uh, they would ask me about my thoughts, you know. And, and that's what brought that question up for me about, you know, speaking with your mouth versus rapping with your soul is that to rap was soulful, right? And um, a conversation, I suppose, can be soulful. And I like conversations, but Will, I don't know how I would make a conversation as soulful as what we just heard, like the music you just played or the raps that Ray created. Like that takes it to a different, and it's all, he's speaking from somewhere else. Right. And so I would say that the arts, uh, maybe traditional therapy, we're talking about to use that table metaphor again. I think there's a lot of emotions and cognitions on the table. I don't think there's a lot of soul on the table. And I think art and music and rap 
can uh, give us a portal into some someone's soul. And I only say that not because I, I mean, this is what Ray and others have taught me. I, I wish that I was sort of smart enough to just know that, but um, you know, this is, this is what I've learned. You know, it makes me think of a line from Vincent van Gogh who said, uh, he just saw photography for the first time after doing painting and it was just being invented. And he said, yeah. it seems to me that painting comes from deep in the soul and where the machine can't go. And I like that phrase of like some art being able to reach where the machine can't go and where machine-like practices can't can't go. And I see that you know with the youth who are rapping, it's they can go places with rapping that they that they aren't going to in the conversations I'm having with them, even that they're having with peers. It seems like it comes from this. They can express reaching reach reaches this other other kind of place. And, you know, a lot of my friends ask them what kind of music they like, and lyrics are not always so important to them. But a lot of the youth who are into hip-hop, lyrics are, are important to them. And there are lines that they are memorizing and they are thinking about and they are keeping in mind as like guiding lights for them when they make decisions and when they choose directions in their life. And I'm wondering, you know, what, you know, just like been around forever of poetry being guides for people. Um, like I said, a lot of people that I know, the, the lyrics aren't so important. The lyrics only became important to me about three years ago when I really started to pay attention and look for songs that are lyrics that stood out to me. But are there some lyrics or lines that uh, you think would be good to circulate among the listeners and the people you mentioned you'd like to to share uh, your message with? Are there some lines that you, you would want to uh, uplift? Well, I mean, geez, I could do a three-hour podcast on this alone. Um, so, some of this is, um, uh, you know, music that comes from um, artists that are popularized artists. Some of these lyrics, you know, I mean, we could go through the songs of young people that they've written, that uh, there are lyrics that are particularly important to them. Um, so there's a, a song um, uh, from Public Enemy, Um this wasn't off of one of their albums, I don't believe. It came from the old uh, movie White Men Can't Jump. I don't know, uh, Woody Harrelson, um, Wesley Snipes. It was 1991-ish, somewhere in that range. And just for our listeners, because I'll give you some context in case you don't know. There's this sort of idea, and as an old basketball player, you know, I'm, uh, I grew up knowing this context, but maybe not everyone does. This idea that white men can't jump, um, that the sport of basketball has often been dominated, um, you know, by black men. And so, and black men have hops. In other words, they can jump really high. And so the sort of story is, um, uh, well, white men can't jump. Heck, they made a whole movie out of this. So Public Enemy has this line that says, white men in suits don't have to jump. White men in suits don't have to jump. Still a thousand one ways to lose. Think about that for a minute. White men can't jump versus white men in shoes don't have to jump. Now, I'm reading a part from that uh, 2015 article with Ray I was telling you about. Uh, so he, he um, uh, what, what he calls samples this, meaning that he takes some of that public enemy lyrics and he combines it with some of his own lyrics. So he's, he's sort of freestyling, but he samples from public enemy. His words now, this is Ray. He says, you know that line, white men in suits don't have to jump. That's what I'm talking about. I say... Right. There's that old saying, white men can't jump when it comes to basketball. Did those lyrics do something clever with it? Ray says, for sure. White men don't have to jump to make money, and white men don't have to rap to be heard. By the way, Ray's quite a philosopher. He's unbelievable. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Wisest. 
He says, don't get me wrong. I write rhymes because I love to. Sometimes when I write, it's just about partying or females or something light. But I also write because it allows me to have a voice. You know, it's like rap says to the world, I'm going to say shit how it is, whether you like it or not. Um, now, hey, as narrative therapists, we often talk about discourse and privilege. I mean, could you imagine if Ray and I, if, if we, you know, if we, and now look, I'm not insulting Ray's intelligence. He's very familiar with the term white privilege. I'm not claiming he's not. But imagine if the two of us just had a conversation around white privilege or if, Ray identifies a lyric of white men in suits don't have to jump. He raps it, and then we deconstruct it. And what you just heard, that's a very quick um, uh, little snippet, but th that's often how my uh, interviews go with young people, right? Is it's like, it, it's alternating. It's sort of rap, either the young person's rapping or we're listening to something uh, on my computer or his phone or whatever. And then we're talking about it, and then we're rapping, and then we're talking, right? And so th th there becomes this nice little dance that we do. So this, um, this uh, f from Lauren Hill, uh, more than uh, one. And by the way, I've worked with mostly male-identified young persons, okay? Um, I have worked with a couple of woman-identified young persons, but mostly um, male-identified. And Lauren Hill, they'll say, oh, you know, Lauren Hill's dope. Lauren Hill's the truth, right? Um, here's a line from uh, Black Rage. I'm not going to rap it. I'm not a particularly good rapper, but maybe there'll be a little soul in how I'm reading it to you. Black rage is founded on two-thirds a person, rapings and beatings and suffering that worsens. Black human packages tied up in strings. Black rage can come from all these kinds of, uh, all these kings of things. Black rage is founded on two-thirds a person, rapings and beatings and suffering and worsens black human packages tied up in strings black rage can come from all these kinds of things yeah now in my community um and i know unfortunately in the bay area and in other major cities in california and across the united states unfortunately um there have been more and more incidents right of of, of uh, police officers um murdering i mean that's my ethic and how I see this murdering young people right uh, sometimes in cold blood and um, young people that have done everything right but right you know the way what they're told is right um, so uh, you know this uh, this has been a topic of injustice right that comes up and that Lauren Hill uh, line does it perfectly uh, there's one other that is um, so this, uh, the artist is J. Cole. Uh, J. Cole is another big one. A lot of um, young people bring J. Cole with them. Song's called Be Free. Here's a lyric I've heard a lot. Can you tell me why every time I step outside I see my niggas die? I'm letting you know there ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh, no. Can you tell me why every time I step outside I see my niggas die? 
give my soul. Oh no. Say, all we want to do is take the chains off. So break that lyric down for a minute, right? First, it's just, can you tell me why, right? Hey, I was, um, you said we were at this uh, narrative gathering. Uh, our friend Carlos from Spain, he was uh, just listening to a conversation that Danielle, uh, what's Danielle's last name? Drake. Uh, she's incredible, by the way. She's your neighbor, as it turns out. Um, you know, we were just having a conversation about some of our work and experiences in the world. And, you know, uh, some of these injustices came up. And um, Carlos says, he just, he sh he's just in disbelief. And he goes, that's unbelievable. Like, it's, I didn't know this happened. That is unbelievable. And I stepped back and I thought about it. And I thought, like, it, it really is unbelievable. Like, I know it happens, but like, when I sit back and think about what's going on, when I, when I remove myself from being so desensitized to it because of, you know, uh, being a person of color in the U.S., uh, I go like, it is unbelievable that this happens, right? So just the question of, can you tell me why? Like, I've asked that question. Young people I've worked with have asked that question, right? Uh, and then, um, there ain't no gun they make that can kill my soul. Oh no, there's that word again, soul. There's something in this work that rap transcends just the spoken word. It, it, it takes us somewhere deeper. Right, so that J. Cole song is, is a good one. Um, uh, I don't know if this starts to give you a sense. I could find a few others. Um, um, let me um, find something from Ray here. Would it, would it be okay if I, uh, now again, I'm not a rapper, but I'll, I'll do my best to, I, I won't do it justice, but I'll do my best to represent it as much as I can. Can I read you one of uh, Ray's rhymes? Maybe even a couple. Here's one. And all of these uh, are published with permission and so forth. And so, um, uh, you know, there's a pseudonym, Ray's a pseudonym. Um, I mean, he's, he's truly a co-author of this paper. I, I like this one a lot. Uh, he called this one, Shit Happens. The sun came out today, shit happens. Parents biking, uh, parents hiking, kids biking, and me, nothing like them, shit happens. Cornell West minded, no degree, so I'm poor, sinful sided, shit happens. I'm honest, I unload and I'm an asshole. Don't pipe up and I'm looked at as bashful. Shit happens. I feel for you, I feel for him, I feel for her, I feel so much. I keep it curbed, day-to-day -day things just seem absurd, cause shit happens. I'm artistic, vestless, but went too many years wild, young, and reckless to be seen as unique, intriguing essence. Shit happens. It sucks, but it's relative to people who live in shit. And the smell of it, they look at me like, boy, get a grip. It ain't perfect, but guess what? Shit happens. The sun came out today. That's how he ends it, right? There's a line in there that, uh, well, do you mind, Will, if I ask you, did anything um, speak to you uh, in that? Well, the, the, he starts with the, the sun came out today and ends with the sun came out today. And I'm interested in that after talking about the things he sees, the things, parents hiking, kids biking, and me, nothing like them, shit happens. This is a reference to Cornel West, which is which is really interesting. He's one of my favorite philosophers that are contemporary philosophers of all time. Um, wonderful, who brings a lot of music and into the philosophy. Um, I'm honest. I'm, I unload, and I'm an asshole. Don't pipe up, and I'm looked at as bashful. This kind of double bind about not speaking uh, or speaking either way, looked at as problematic. Um, and then curiosity about you know this uh, this this this. Opening and ending, um, 
to the sun came out today and just being said uh, after that and, and wondering what that was like to go through uh, these dilemmas, um, the difference between the people who have kind of privilege in biking and hiking and himself, um, the real tangible, funky smell of shit that he's talking about. And the sun came out today, beginning and end. What did, what did, that, what did that mean to him? That's, it's interesting to me. Those are the things you know. Yep. And those were, I mean, you see how much we can get, right? Um, so this was actually uh, the first, so at the end of our first meeting, um, I often ask a question like, well, here, I, I, uh, let me find it. So I'll, I'll actually see how I have done it before, you know. So um, th- you'll like this line. I say, he says to me, you're the weirdest shrink they've ever sent me to. Not weird like bad, not bad at all. But does probation know you do this? I say, do what? Ask people to rap? He goes, yeah. I say, they know I help people find the kinds of therapies that work best for them. Do you think this one we've come up with today might work for you? He says, oh, yeah, but I don't even know if this is really therapy. What would you call it? He says, it's like a studio session where I'm making beats with my homies or something. I say, should we have a studio session once a week together? He says, for sure. Um, all right, uh, let me um, read the question to you. Here we go. Would you be willing to write a song between now and next time that paints the part of the picture that probation and maybe other people in your life don't seem to get about you? Right? So I asked him about this, and uh, he came in with three different songs, but this was the first one that he came, he came up with. And so um, uh, that's kind of the spirit um, that uh, invited this, I guess, you know, the spirit that um, uh, we were working in together. Uh, now, the line that immediately caught me was Cornell West-minded. First, it's just, um, again, well, so many of the young people I work with, I'm telling you, they are philosophers right they're philosophers but they don't get privileged as philosophers right so cornell west minded yeah he is like i'm telling you he is cornell west minded let let me read you this other exchange i think you'll you'll dig this because i heard that cornell west minded right go like who is this kid you know like that is amazing um so let me uh read this exchange i say do you believe you're a philosopher he goes I never really thought about it like that. I know I'm a writer, but I guess that means I'm a philosopher. Uh, I say, do you mind if I tap into your own philosophical expertise? He says, sure, I know what you're going to say next. You're going to ask me about my philosophy on shit. He had, you know, this was near the end of the meeting. I say, you know me too well already, Ray. He says, my philosophy is simple. It's to see the truth even when they obscure it. It's to go deeper. If you don't, you'll believe a lie. I say, how do you see deeper? You have to do what my grandmother says. Ignore the noise. You can't believe everything you hear. You can't even believe everything you think you see. I ask, is your grandmother a wise philosopher too? She's the wisest person I know. Right? And so we go, keep going down this, this riff. What has her philosophy taught you about the person you want to be? She always says, I didn't raise no fool. Would you say that your grandmother's philosophy and the philosophy of KRS-One are similar? She go, he goes, he goes, hmm. He goes, that's crazy, bro. I never thought of it like that, but I guess so. Because his grandmother hated rap, right? But yet his philosophy started making its way in quite remarkably. So there's a way then through our questioning that, um, you know, at one point I ask him, um, 
if you know about philosophy and i said do you think socrates is the first philosopher of rap and i know what he's gonna say hell no uh i said well that he's a philosopher right and i know this is a, i know where i'm going with this you know yeah he's not the i said well who would be you know he goes uh krs1 right and we start talking about it and what we're doing now is we're privileging hip-hop culture rap artists as philosophers right because philosophers think about krs1 in the broader culture and socrates in the or even cornell west i'm so happy will you called him a philosopher i think most people would call him some sort of like black panther pundit or you know you know what i mean but he's a philosopher so it's interesting how um uh, that language gets used and so my hope in doing this work is uh you know we we can see that oh uh rappers are philosophers and there's no reason we don't have to use that language but i use it purposefully as to say we should privilege rap artists just as we do academics philosophers uh shamans wise people uh, I want to just rewind a little bit to talking about the making this link between KRS-One and the grandmother and two sources of wisdom and finding the commonality between them. I've been uplifting this quote that has been precious to me from early on in my days of narrative therapy by Kenneth Gergen. Therapy tends to privilege the individual rather than the set of relationships in which that individual lives. And I think with Ray, looking at the set of relationships between his grandmother and hip-hop and grandmother's relationship with hip-hop, um, and their relationship together, looking at those relationships and finding a way to build bridges and look at the conflict between hip hop and the grandmother and and Ray. That's that reminds, makes me think of the set of relationships in which Ray lived. And by seeing things of looking at those relationships or reauthoring those relationships, it uh, makes people have a different experience. Then I you know I just you know how much that conversation would have been different if you had stuck with the manualized CBT approach to Ray. <laughs> I know uh, you can't see my eyes right now, but I just, I'm sort of, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm terrified about how that might've turned out. Right. Uh, and I say that because, Hey, I started trying to do that. I started with my manuals trying to, you know, and even though I was familiar with hip hop culture, I tried to do that, and I'll tell you where it led for me. I can't say this is where it leads for everyone, but I can tell you where it led for me. It led to people uh, sort of um, dropping out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I don't mean drop, well, they probably drop out of therapy too, but they dropped out of the conversation. As well, they should, I, I was asking them things that were not culturally near. I was asking them things that uh, they had no resonance with. Um, yeah, here, to build off of what you just said, and can I share a few more verses with yes, you please. of Ray's? So um, I say, do you think rappers are philosophers? He says, no doubt. Rap is philosophy, but without all the old white cats. And he starts laughing. And then I say, Socrates is not the first father, uh, is not the father or first philosopher of rap. He goes, hell no, laughs harder. Who do you think is? Probably KRS-One. I say, what in your opinion is the job of a philosopher? He says, to make people think, like hold a mirror up to the world so they can see how foolish they are. And then he begins rapping. We, we captured this, it's a freestyle. Here you go. Peep the crucifix comes across mysterious with I Jehovah hanging from the partisan nails of politics. The origins governing men of Romans did agree to its means justifying capital, capital punishment for the minds they despised to keep all the sheep in line. While revolution sparked divine Christ, but check the rhyme. What if they lynched him hanging from the branch of a tree, then burned him half alive? Peep manipulation, be We would pray to a tree, then human torching eventually. Fire associated with hell overstand irony. When a bullet
bullet burns its way into your brother's physical, laid to rest in a wooden casket. Damn, it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. If people aren't familiar with freestyle, I mean, um, I don't know, maybe if people have gone to poetry slam, sometimes there's a, something that approximates a freestyle. I don't know if that's the same language that gets used, um, but I've seen people freestyle in those kinds of environments, but it's basically, it's serendipitous, right? It's what comes off the, uh, out of the mind. Now, now, here's something I've learned, though, about freestyles, is that often um, uh, people have cultivated what they're freestyling over many years. So they have sort of phrases that, that become a part of their rhymes and they'll just come out when they need them. So in some ways, it's not like it's being made up on the spot. It's like they're calling on uh, uh, ideas that are already um, circulating somewhere. You know what I mean? I wanted to ask you, let's say someone is inspired by the work that you're doing and would like to also go into some of these worlds, psychology, social work, um, and make change, what would they be up against in the system to these kind of, kind of changes? What should they know when they're thinking about this path um, that you would like to pass on to them? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, Danielle could speak to this as well. Um, you know, there are plenty of others that are doing, if it's not with rap music, they're doing subversive work in other ways. And um, I, I think people, ha if you're going to do that, you have to have a certain uh, comfort level with um, being seen at as uh, seen as weird. Um, maybe even, you know, when, when things are foreign to us, and maybe this is just as human beings, um, maybe this is just how we kind of react sometimes, and it's maybe a first reaction we often have, when something's weird or foreign, uh, we might get defensive or we might push away. And so I think I've experienced a lot of that, you know, uh, even well-intentioned. I'm not saying it's always uh, harsh, but, um, you know, distancing um, a lot of um, a lot of questions of the ethics of the kind, you know, the work. And, um, you know, so I think you have to prepare for those kinds of questions when you're doing something different. Um, of course, I think you also have to construct answers to those questions. They deserve to be answered. If somebody is uh, asking about uh, the ethics of this and, and wondering, and I'm not talking about like my ethic that drives me, but I'm talking about the ethics of the profession, right? I think that's a good question and I should prepare an answer, right? Uh, so that's how I've always looked at that. And I think I can answer when they, uh, well, if I can't, I'll say, let me think about that and I'll come back with an answer. So I'm not, it's not that I don't want to answer those questions, but I think you have to prepare for that. Also, to be honest with you, I, I, I'm in private practice and I've been in private practice for almost a decade and I've found that that's where I've got to be. I mean, I went to private practice before I probably should have before I knew what I was doing. Uh, I needed some elders to kind of help me along and show me the, I mean, the therapy part, of course, you're always learning with that. And I hope I'm always learning and, 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 and practicing, but you know, just how do you pay taxes and money? I'm not, I'm not good at any of, I don't, I know none of that, but I had to do it because I needed a certain autonomy and a certain freedom. And that's been the best thing I've ever done, to be honest with you, because it's freed me up. And, um, you know, the last thing that I'd say, um, you know, when you ask what people are up against, um, to find mentors and they don't, by the way, they don't even have to be mentors that are interested in exactly what you're doing. You know, like David Epstein has been a great mentor of mine for two or three years now. I mean, going through transcripts with me and just, I mean, the, the, the amount of time he's poured into me is absurd. I mean, I, 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 it's just, I don't 
no person deserved what he's given me. And so uh, it's a great gift. Um, and, but he doesn't know anything about rap music. He wanted to learn, though. And, um, you know, in terms of the kinds of questions I might ask, he helped me greatly. Now, I also have um, uh, mentors like Makungu along the way and others. I mean, I could go down a list of people. But even though I'm autonomous and working, like, not for an agency, it doesn't mean that I'm alone. <laughs> I have uh, communities of people that I can, um, you know, with, with, similar, with a similar ethic, um, even if they know nothing about rap. I think that's invaluable. If I well, if I was trying to do this all by myself, I worry that um, you know, I, I, I worry that I, I second guessing would come into the equation, right? Like, you know, someone might ask a question about the ethics of it, and I might go, "Well, wait, am I really allowed to do this?" Right? But when you have other people that share your ethic, um, I think it, it 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 helps a lot. You know, maybe the last thing I'd say in terms of what to be on the lookout for if you wanted to do this kind of work is. And I don't know if this captures the spirit of your question. I'm sorry if it doesn't, but I'd be on the lookout for innovation. Like these, well, any practice in my humble opinion, but especially if you're doing something that's a little bit different, like things that aren't, aren't even narrative therapy. I'm just list, like, you know, someone could have a TED talk on and I'm, if there's a really weird idea in a TED talk, you know what I mean? One that I see people are sort of like, their faces crinkle up and they're like, what's that? Immediately, I'm like, okay, what, what's that? Like, I want to know what that, and maybe it's nothing and maybe it, well, it's probably something, but maybe it's of no value to what I'm doing. But not just in the narrative world, but out in the world, I'm constantly listening for things that are different, listening for things that uh, make me uh, crinkle my eyebrow or, or, or sort of wonder about something, right? Uh, you know, um, what was the quote uh, I heard from David Epstein earlier today from, um, I think it was Martin Luther, that uh, befuddlement is the beginning of learning or something like that? Do you, you remember the... Yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote down in my notes, bewilderment is the true source of learning from Martin Luther. And I never heard that till today, but I think that captures what I'm talking about here. So to, to prepare then, I think you just have to prepare to um, maybe hear things that others might not hear, or, or if they hear it, uh, they move away from it and you go towards it. Well, you know, I, I've known people who've done PhD programs and they want to be a change agent in the world. And when I did the uh, podcast episode with Catherine Moore, I spent 17 years in CPS in a difficult system, an oppressive system. And she, she said that change agents pay a price often. And, um, you know, maybe that's a price you know, some people are willing to pay. But um, I'm curious about that price. And I guess I... I you know, from your experience, what to warn people about, but also if some people find themselves already in a program and they're ha and they're uh, having a difficult time in the system and looking out for what they could do, um, have you have you been in that situation? Have you seen people in that situation? What do you find helpful if you know they're pouring themselves in this direction and they're doubting it, and, or they're hurting from it, or they there's people involved who are cringe-worthy and wrong <laughs> or unjust in some ways what what are some things that they could do in that situation 
Another great question. I would say that uh, first, I try to get rid of all the bureaucracy and, and uh, well, I guess what Ray said earlier, his grandmother's wisdom is good wisdom, ignore the noise. And I try to just focus on the people I'm working with. So I try to really, you know, if the system is oppressive in some way, I can know it's oppressive, and but, but the only ways that I'm gonna begin to stay, take steps, in my opinion, in changing that is in my own interactions in the world and that, that day, that moment, right? And so I try to, I do this in my teaching too. I mean, being a tenure track professor at a university, there's a lot of politics and bureaucracy, but if I can focus on my students, it bring it connects me to what matters. I do the same thing with you know the clients the, you know that I work with. So I think that's helpful. Um, the other thing I would say, and this uh, this has a risk, so I'm not saying it's perfect, but I've in the long run I found it to be helpful. Which is that you know people will ask me, they'll say, especially the evidence based crowd, how do you know your work's effective? I said I don't. <laughs> well, that's not. What do you mean? I say I don't. Uh, you need to talk to my clients. They'll be the ones who can tell you if my work is effective. And so what I've done a lot of is just, much like this paper we've been uh, going over today with Ray, hey, look, look, see what they say. See what their thoughts about this are. And um, and then you can read those accounts and you can be the judge. So when I worked in agencies, and you know some agencies were more receptive than others, but um, you know it, it was more just sort of talk to the people that I work with give them scales or measures, do whatever you want to do, but see if um, they feel like they're better off, they're worse off, or they're exactly the same. And um, what I found overwhelmingly is uh, that um, that's evidence. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I have no interest. I, I could do it, but I have no interest in making some quantitative paper. But, you know, I, okay, maybe uh, a bunch of clients are lying. Maybe um, they're all lying to um, protect my feelings or something. I mean, I don't know what the excuse is. Okay. I mean, I can't, if someone wants to believe that, there's nothing I can do to sell them on it. But I found that most people, most most therapists who um, are truly interested in helping people get where those people want to go, not not where the therapist wants, but where the, the people that consult us, wherever those people want to go. If you're invested in that, how are you going to ignore a client's account, right? So I found even people when we disagree theoretically, if if they if I can show them okay here's what clients are saying about this it changes them they go oh okay and usually what they do is they sort of find the CBT in what I'm doing or they find the emotionally focused th oh okay that's fine hey if someone wanted to bring rap music into psychodynamic or CBT great like you know what I would consider that a win I'm a narrative therapist not everyone has to be a narrative therapist but my I would consider it a win because they'd be getting off the script and they'd be introducing some soul into their work. So I, I don't, you know, I'm not invested in everybody has to be a narrative therapist. I think the world would be very bland. I mean, we'd like it, but overall it would be very bland. Um, but I, th that's what I found is, is the best testimony, is what, what do clients say? Because I find most people aren't asking that question. Uh, or, or if they are, they're not asking it enough. If you had, you know, like um, some youth who wants to go into the world of psychology or social worker and, and you would describe narrative therapy to them. How would you describe it to them that would try to get, convey some of the spirit of it to someone who wants to do good work in the world and wants to help, help people? How would you describe it? You used a word that I'm in love with, which is spirit. More and more I've been, um, you know, in my teaching uh, or supervising, if you like, I'm not so fond of that word, but, you know, any kind of teaching I'm doing, it's how do I... Um, 
how do I inject the spirit or invite them to inject the spirit of narrative therapy into their being such that it goes with them. I have no interest. Like sometimes people, uh, workshops or teaching I'm doing, they'll see these questions. I'll sort of ask, when do I ask these questions? I'll say, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever ask this question again. But what my hope is that you, you could be exposed to the work and then the work could get under your skin and you'd carry the spirit with you. So I think the, the, the I love that languaging, Will, it's the spirit. Now, um, in terms of how I might introduce it, it's, um, uh, well, I, don't, I think there are a couple of important things here. The first one is uh, <laughs> trying to think of a way to say this where I'm being fair. I don't want to be, un, un, I mean, I'm biased. I'm hopelessly biased and I'm not neutral and I don't claim to be, but I also want to try to be fair. Um, if it, I'm thinking of a, a, a young girl I worked with, she was about eight or nine um, and what was she consulting me for? Um, this wasn't with rap therapy at all. It was with, um, I think she was having, uh, you know, they were doc the medical doctors calling them night terrors or whatever. And uh, so we sort of constructed a plan. I mean, she came up with the plan and um, it involved building like a fort or something. You know, I'm trying, this was 12 years ago. I can't remember, but building a fort or something. Anyways, it worked and the night terrors subsided, right? And, um, you know, it took five, six weeks, but it, it, was, it worked. And at the end of it, I remember, and this was a genuine question because I was sort of baffled. I was just coming into narrative, right? It was like one of my first dabs of this. It was clunky. I mean, David probably could have done this in half a session, you know, so it took me five or six. But, you know, I, I asked her like, what, um, because she had gone to, a, her parents had taken her to a bunch of other therapists. Why do you think your idea worked better than the ideas of all these other, like, therapists? And she said, um, in the way only a nine-year-old who called on a bit of sass could, she said, uh, she said, you know, um, if it's your idea, of course you're going to like it better. She just sort of looked at me like I was nuts, right? And I was. I, I mean, I was nuts. I, it, to, like, it makes perfect sense. And so when I think of narrative Therapy, it's how do we create space, invite in, uh, you know, like my friend Makungu said, you know, uh, uh, mediums of healing that the client wishes to heal in. So when I think of narrative therapy, uh, that's really the first thing I think about. I think narrative at its best does that sensationally. It invites in people to heal in ways they want to. Now, I think we can push the boundaries of it. I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm honored that, that we'd have it together. They could pu push the boundaries with music and dance and all sorts of other things, right? Um, art. Uh, you know, the, the, the only other thing I'd say if I was introducing narrative is I'd say, um, and, you know, uh, uh, David Marston and Lori Markham have done great work on this, David Epstein as well. The, the idea of wonderfulness interviews. If people haven't checked those out, they're fantastic. I work those into my practice. Um, I, I use them now and when, when I'm doing a sort of hip-hop narrative therapy, if you like. And instead of the traditional psychiatric interview, um, why don't we find out someone's ethics, wonderfulnesses, you know, whatever we want to call them first. And that's what I do at the very beginning now, you know. And you can do it through rap music. Again, do it through the medium that the person wished to heal in, right? Um, now, uh, uh, that's very different than a traditional psychiatric interview. I mean, I used to have to do those things at agencies, and I respect some people may still have to, but it would take me two or three sessions to come back from the initial interview because the problem would just have them by the throat. 
but I found to start with the I, the wonderfulness interview and what are your you know your core ethics, your core wonderfulnesses that are so close to your heart, so important to you that you might even die for them if it came to that, right? And you ask people these questions and. I found almost everyone I've ever spoken with has amazing answers. Now, we can do that in a rap context, too. I'm not going to ask the question the same way. I think we have to be versatile as therapists, right? I mean, I might ask that question if we're doing hip-hop therapy. I might say, uh, if you could come up with a rhyme that had the the two or three most um, uh, important stories of your life, that are ideas, things you stand for, that you might even die for if it came to that, what what, what would you... what what would that song look like? Is there already a song or two or three or five out there that we could listen to? Do you want to write one? You know, um, but I found starting that way is, is um, imperative. Like as an old athlete, it just makes sense. You know, like we, we have, if we're going to take on a problem or problems, we have to have something to put up against the problem. I mean, in people's weakest moments, we're sending them in, in in traditional therapy, we're sending them into the lion's den and going, here's the problem. You know, it's very, it's terrifying. Whereas if, you know, first we look at uh, what you have to put up against the problem. And really, um, I do it with more intention now. I'm always learning um, how to do this better, but doing it with more intention where this is, I'm basically asking people to write rap songs about wonderfulnesses. Now, if I use that word, they might look at me a little funny. Like, could you make a rap about wonderfulnesses? Although I've never tried it. I will now because I'm just curious. I think they might appreciate the word because it's language bending and rap music does a lot of language bending. So I think they'd be at least curious. Now, maybe uh, wonderfulness wouldn't be the word they would use, but they'd be curious um, how we're bending the language. So th- I think those are the two main things is like, you know, starting with uh, wonderfulnesses, as David Marston and Laurie call them, right? And, um, you know, I, I, if, there's, if there's one last thing, and I guess we've taken this full circle, and this is what I find students are really into. I don't use the word subversive because often they're not, you know, that, that may be a bit foreign of a word, at least to some of the students I work with. But um, do, do you want to do, do you want to do something that um, is status quo, or would you like to try something that uh, perhaps is a little bit different? And although most people admit it's a, it's scary, it's scary to almost unanimously they'll say, "Oh, I'd like to do something that's a little bit different." I'll say, "Okay, do you think that the client you would work with would want to do something that everyone's doing, the sort of the status quo, or would they like to try something that's um, a little different and more flexible, where you know there's we I can't even be sure what direction we'll go, right? As 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 the quote unquote therapist." And I find that really students will go, okay, and that get, that gets them into this too. You know, in this world of Trump that we're in now, I, I find that the uh, it was already trending in this direction, but narrative ideas are really calling to people, not, not just on an intellectual level, but on a deep level, somewhere deep in their soul, they say like, oh, these ideas uh, are essential. Like for what America claims it is, I don't know that we always live up to that ethic, but for what we claim that we are as a people narrative therapy would be essential right because that that that's um that's threatened right now with what's happening so i think current events can help steer students in those um directions too so those are my usual sales pitches but honestly the best sales pitch i've ever found and this is the workshop i'm doing here in vermont tomorrow is 
show them a case story like the case story of Ray doesn't have to be mine Kay Ingemel's she doesn't do rap it could be you know she's written these great uh, uh, Wilbur the Warrior becomes Wilbur the Warrior um, uh, Sasha Pilkington in New Zealand has written some amazing stories knocking on death's door uh, miracle uh, cures and the uh, something insurance policies for miracle cures I think anyway you can find all of those that I just mentioned in the journal of systemic therapies I find that if you read those stories to people the vast majority of them they're just captivated. And um, uh, so showing the work uh, can sometimes be better than telling someone about it. Are there things that we haven't discussed that you would like to touch on before we end? You ask really good questions, so I'm not I'm not sure that there's a ton other than I just really want to thank you for. I mean, we've been talking about uh, just just not necessarily in the podcast, but just ha you and I having an opportunity to talk, and I'm honored that it could be recorded, um, and that you'd you'd you know be interested and be uh, willing to help circulate these ideas, and um, you know, so that that's just a great honor and. I hope that uh, even if people aren't interested in rap or hip hop, that uh, they would leave with just, even if it's just a small inkling, just a spirit of innovation, you know, like, hey, you don't have to do rap therapy, but everyone out there's got something that's percolating, you know, narrative therapists out there are students, right, that are, and they're sort of like, well, I don't know, you know, I, I better be a good narrative therapist, and I guess I want to encourage them to not be a good narrative therapist. I mean, of course, read and do all of that, but... A good narrative therapist is not a good narrative therapist. I mean, Michael and David said it, right? That this is, there has to be a constant spirit of innovation. Now, of course, we need to learn the basics and we need to have good mentors. But, um, you know, it, we're being anti-narrative therapy, aren't we? If we, if we simply, um, uh, you know, rinse and repeat that which we've already seen. And so I guess I just want to uh, encourage people to do that. You know, I'll tell this last story and then I'll be done. I was... Um, uh, um, doing a workshop, I don't know, a few years back, and it was on this. It was on, you know, hip hop, and you know, these ideas are constantly evolving. So it was a few years back, and not nearly evolved as it is now, and there's still much evolution to happen. But uh, David Epstein came into the workshop. I had a bit of a panic, you know. Oh no, David, you know, this guy who helped Cove. I better not fuck this up. Is what, am I allowed to curse? Yes, okay, sir. sorry, sorry. Um, sometimes I do. Uh, but that, no, but that's what I said in my head. Is like, I better not fuck this up, right? Um, here's the guy who co-created it. And then the first 30 minutes of the presentation, we're going to talk about the history of narrative therapy. Like, I'm going to talk, I'm going to say things like David Epstein believed. Oh, God, I hope this is right. So, um, you know, he, he sits in on the presentation and I'm very nervous, but I get through it and it looked like, you know, it looked like he didn't hate it anyway. So I bailed out of there. But later that night there was a gathering and he and I happened to be there and I, he sort of cornered me. I couldn't get away. And, um, you know, he's, um, as David is apt to do, he said, oh, oh Travis, could I ask you a couple of questions? <laughs> part of me is terrified, but the other part of me is so excited because who's going to turn this down? And he says, um, oh, Travis, why, um, why do you ask Australia and New Zealand questions? And I um, had a, quite a conundrum in my mind at that moment because 
I, uh, I sort of change the questions. It's not really how I ask the questions. I change them to be good narrative therapy questions, right? So I didn't know how to answer that. And um, he, then David said, I sort of act, acted like I was confused. And David said, um, well, like, what if you let hip hop ask the questions? And I thought for, and, and I'd like to think I was already trying to do that. I don't know how well I was doing it. But here was the guy who co-created narrative therapy. Think about this for a minute. Who was basically, it took me a few months to figure out what was being, you know, two lines, what was being communicated in two lines of dialogue. The guy who co-created narrative therapy is saying, don't do what I did. Do what you need to do in this context, right? And this was the beginning of a, a great um, mentorship uh, between David and I. But um, I couldn't bring myself to tell him. Uh, it took me over a year to tell him, hey, David, um, we'd already written papers together and things. I said, I have something I have to confess. And I knew him good enough. I thought he would take it well. I said, um, you know, I, I didn't really ask um, Australian, New Zealand questions. It's a dirty little secret. I asked the questions the way you've seen me asking them. And he, you know, he goes, oh, I knew it or something like that. And then he says to me, he goes, you know, I think a lot of people have dirty little secrets like this and we have to expose them because this isn't right. This is how narrative therapy becomes colonizing. And um, I felt, you know, you said, did, did I have anything else I wanted to share? And I, I definitely wanted to share that because I think it transcends doing rap, hip hop, whatever. You know, don't be a good narrative therapist. Like, there's no such thing. Be a narrative therapist that is going to push the boundaries and innovate. And um, uh, thank God. I mean, thank God David said that to me because I may not have, right? And then I'm essentially, and I feel awful about this, but I have to be truthful. I'm misrepresenting my work, right? I'm I'm saying I ask these, even in this article that you read, the first one you referenced, I tweak those questions to be Australian and New Zealand questions because out of fear of, oh my God, will I be judged is not a good narrative therapist. And to have David Epstein say that, I just feel so so fortunate to have had that exchange and and um he's basically made it a mission that i circulate this and you know there'll be um obviously narrative enthusiasts listening to this and if and maybe david's told this to many others but there might be some who haven't heard that and i just want them to hear that from david too you know i mentioned this quote about the set of relationships in which individuals in which we live and i think one relationship is people's relationship with art you know and looking at these youth's relationship with hip-hop and i i identified that this is a a good direction to go in to explore with them but I, always, I didn't know exactly how and your article I, I kind of look when I identify a direction what is the smallest possible step I can think to go in that direction and asking kids what they were listening to was a start and when I started to do that and we had those kind of conversations that created a fertile ground for more creativity which was like inviting them to record things and bantering about with them and you know, they, I told you they called me Will Productions after that I got this wonderful nickname this is one of my highlights of my career is this wonderful nickname and you know some of the moments I created but it's but it started with identifying this is a useful direction not knowing a step to take in that direction hearing a small step I could take from your paper and then grow, growing with the creativity that grows from taking that kind of small step um, and I, you know that's a, that is that is a relationship. I'm really interested in people's relationship with art, and talking about that, and and how that relationship can inform other relationships in their lives. Yeah. So thank you very much, Travis, and I look forward to the next time we'll do this. 
thank you, Will. It was a great honor, and um, me as well. I mean, we, we, we could take a whole other podcast and talk about um, the relationship with art. When you said that, I thought of a, a client that I had worked with, so I, I, I hope that this won't be our last conversation. Yes. yes, and if people are interested in your work and they want to find out more or want to contact you, what's the best ways to contact you? Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks for doing that, Will. Um, Email is probably the best way. So um, my name is Travis Heath, last name H-E-A-T-H. And my email address is my last name Heath, so H-E-A-T-H, first initial T. So Heath T at M as in Michael, S-U Denver dot E-D-U. So Heath T at M-S-U Denver edu um, and you know if you hear this and you want access to any of those papers just email me I'm happy to uh, email them to you and um, I, I don't I wouldn't email them in in the spirit of I'm an expert um, it would much more be hey um, are you interested in these papers uh, what do you like what don't you like what are you confused about what directions would you have gone I mean that's the way I've come to expand the work is not that I'm an expert doing this the right way I don't know what the right way is um, it's still very much in process I hope there's never a right way but I would very much welcome just conversation about them um, so I, I certainly don't want you to think that um, I, I know everything that I'm doing here. Um, I, I know there are people that are listening to this right now who could help the direction of this, and um, I'd really love uh, you to jump on board. Thanks so much, Travis. Thanks again to Dr. Travis Heath. I'm left with a lot of inspiration and new directions to consider. Excited to see where your messages will go, what they will do in the world. And for contact info or for the links to the full songs that we discussed, uh, you can go online to sfbantr.org. I also wanted to let you know that there is a new narrative therapy podcast in Italian called Narrativamente. Lodovica told me about it and it's produced by Luigi Frezza and it's been around since April 2017. There are already 12 episodes. It is available on iTunes and I'll have a link to uh, Luigi's website in the show notes. I wish I spoke Italian, could understand Italian. Um, but I listened to some of it, and it's great quality audio, and Luigi's got a, a great pleasant sounding voice, so thank you, Luigi. ¿Y dónde están los podcasts españoles en terapia narrativa? Estoy aprendiendo español y me gustaría mucho escucharlos. Tal vez usted, el oyente, va a ser uno. And again, all the instrumentals were produced by the Passion Hi-Fi. And in chronological order, it was started with Bittersweet, then Mo Blues, Skyline, and Distant. If you want to go over to SoundCloud and download those yourself, you can. I'm going to close the show with a great track from another artist I know through Dreamcatcher Youth Services. This is the Oakland artist Sass, S-A-A-S. You can hear some more music through SoundCloud. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
and his Facebook is called Wolf Sasuke, S-A-S-U-K-E. This is his track, Lonely Conscious. Thanks for listening. Is <coughs> the mic on? Yeah, turn it up, man. I need to hear this. I'm a cool guy with an instinctive face Just pace, striving to fit in a bigger place On my lonely grinding hard, never seen it left without a trace Simple, educated, wise man with such logical ways Face it, y'all know that I'm not a racist Sixth grade, most of my friends were all Asian Playing Pokemon, my favorite was named Blazing It Oblivious of the fact that I was never really thinking I know on the whole time my mind was only shrinking All the time that I wasted, applause I never started drinking Feeding and leaning over the needless ones Rather my crucial needs, new generation will do the guessing they trying to teach Money, love, drugs, and greed Shove down our ghosts like a human centipede Keep listening to my message, I'll tell you just what I mean Secret society planting all of their evil seeds Sometimes it hurts so hard to even think about it Well, my heart's so deep that I seem to dream about it Some of the nuggles who see and begin to pray about it I know it's wrong, but who said I was perfect yet? If only God had rentals for the private jets I'd be first in line, faith in Bible and check Faith in Bible and check Faith in Bible and check some condone, but others see it as a disgrace If this shoe fit wear, don't even matter the race Silly how I can grow with many But in the end, only hang with an irrational few it's more than half of the peers going delirious Getting me kind of furious, curious and I'm so serious Trying to figure out who's behind doors being so injurious You see he's trying to slow your pace If you keep on rushing, I don't know what to say If you take the wrong route, I for sorry to say But you might just end up landing right on your face I'm the hardest in this game and I don't see how anyone can see otherwise I know and believe I'm a different type of guy All these others rappers are seeming a little lame Only thing on their mind is reaching the false fame Lots of these inferiors seem to be such a game I'm gone Sometimes it hurts so hard to even think about it Well my heart's so deep that I seem to dream about it Some the nuggles who see and begin to pray about it I know it's wrong but who said I was perfect yet If only God had rentals for the private jets I'd be first in line, faith in Bible and check Faith in Bible and check Faith in Bible and check Sasuke the long wolf you already know who it is, man. It's only gonna get much better. I do this for the people. I do this for my dog. Rest in peace to Jay. Free my pops. I'm seeing you, man. Man, let's get it, man. Let's hear the rest of the evening.